grief is often the first time where it's like, it's the first thing we can't run from or hide from. Right. It's there at the end of the day. It's there at the end of the bottle. Like it's there. We can't get away from it. Hi, I'm Lily Cornell Silver, and welcome back to Mind Wide Open, my mental health focused interview series. Today, I am talking to Monique Minahan, who is a writer, mother, yoga teacher, and creator of The Grief Practice, which is a trauma informed yoga that welcomes grief. Um, Monique shares really powerful insight into what grief is and how it intersects with our mental health, as well as how that manifests for us somatically. Uh, thank you so much for watching, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Monique. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. So as most know, grief has been a really significant part of my journey with mental health and just my life journey thus far. And around the one year period that I lost three loved ones to suicide, I also lost two grandparents to natural causes. So I'm super familiar with like the different facets of grief and the different forms that, that grief and loss can take. I became familiar with your work a couple of years ago when a therapist recommended that I follow you on Instagram at The Grief Practice. And I know that your decision to get into this field was rooted in your own journey with grief and loss. Could you give some background on your own experiences and, and how you came to start in this field? Yeah. When I was 25, my husband suddenly died. Mm-hmm. And it was, for me, a really, just a really devastating experience. Because yeah. I, um, I often think that the way that we experience grief is rooted in all of our previous experiences Mm. what we bring to that moment and so for me I had uh, struggled with major depression since I was a teenager and when he died I had been on antidepressants for about five years so I didn't have a lot of um, what I call resources and Mm -hmm. because I was so young this was back in 2002 and so there wasn't like the grief support community especially virtually that there is now I, at the time, was in more of a, a talk therapy base. I, you know, I was on antidepressants, and I also was in talk therapy. And, you know, I understand now that that was not, it was not what I needed at the time because I was having an overwhelming experience, right? All of my biology and physiology is in survival and threat mode. And here I am going and trying to, like, somebody's trying to talk to me about it will be okay. How do you feel? I don't even have yeah. words for how I feel. Right. And, and so for me, something like yoga was I could move and I could move some of that energy that had been kind of um, mobilized, but not fully able to cycle through, um, mm-hmm. through that practice. And then also get in touch with feelings that didn't have a name. You know, there's like yeah. lots of things we can give, you know, depression or sadness, but there's lots of, you know, both and feelings that don't have words. We just, but we know they're there. And yeah. so over time, I was able to get to a place where I felt like, okay, now I can start to integrate the words and the experience and mm-hmm. the feelings and all of that. It can make things, you know, I'll say like worse in a way if we try to like force these words that are not our lived experience. That's something that I talk about in therapy all the time. And if my therapist is watching this, she's going to laugh. Um, <laughs> something that she has to remind me of all the time is you can't think your way out of how you're feeling. And she's like, yes, that's all great. And it's super good to label those experiences, but none of that, you can do that for hours and hours and hours. And it's not going to negate your emotions. It's not going to get you out of that process of having to actually feel the feelings. We're so good at like talking about how we feel and not so good at, at feeling what we feel. Cause it's right. It's hard to feel. Yeah. And, and you know, so much of like 
the wellness world is like, we're so good at feeling better, but not necessarily feeling. So yeah, it was very, I felt very alone in my experience and very misunderstood. And, and so it, it went um, from bad to worse for several years. And there was, <laughs> there was a good stretch where I was, um, you know, definitely suicidal and, and just felt like there was no way through, like there wasn't <laughs> anything on the other side of this experience. That is a lot of motivation for me just to, you know, just to keep being a voice in the sea of voices. I mean, it was absolutely my experience with grief and loss was that feeling of isolation and that feeling that like no one can really understand what I'm going through and that I don't have the support that I need, even though I had a huge support system and had my resources. And I think there's almost an irony in that because basically everyone on the planet experiences grief and loss at some point. And almost everybody also experiences that feeling of, of isolation. Could you speak a little bit more to your experience with isolation and how you found a community within that or how you coped in those moments? Yeah, I, I think of it a lot as people were trying to help me, but mm-hmm. I, they didn't know how to connect with me where I was. And so mm-hmm. it didn't reach me where I needed to be reached and in the way that I needed to be understood. Um, and there was a lot of, I think we all experienced a lot of trying to fix it or make me feel better. And, um, totally. and that just isn't, as we know, I think, <laughs> yeah, useful. Um, there's nothing to fix it's such a tremendous human experience for me when I I started to explore yoga about five years after my husband died Mm -hmm. and it provided this framework where I was able to um, get some embodied resources kind of connect and notice what was happening in my physical experience Mm -hmm. and so I just all of a sudden was able to see a new way through like so yeah. from there I started to find you know community and and just a way forward that I had never imagined before but it, it definitely had to completely collapse for me to you know find find a way through that grief and loss really shaped the way or changed the way that that I deal with mental health um because it, it's it's all intertwined but they're still separate experiences you know it's still it's grief isn't necessarily a chemical imbalance so what what has been your experience with mental mental illness or mental health issues and grief like how do you carry those simultaneously after my husband died I would have these I call them like the loop it was like these visuals and memories that it was like a, a broken record and I would have them they would drive me crazy and I, it wasn't like I, ha- I didn't feel like I had a choice to stop the replay it would just kind of accost my some you know myself so I feel like you know in grief it's normal to have memories and like there'll be some memories or good memories or whatever but that kind of replay like broken record obsessive or, yeah, yeah is more in the line of a tra- you know trauma response and yeah. so those are things that can definitely be you know, worked with, with an appropriate kind of therapy and a therapist, one of the hardest things can be to open and let ourselves love in any capacity again, because it's such a vulnerable thing. And there's a lot of fear around that, you know, experience. So you are a practitioner of somatic experiencing, right? I'm in the, so right now I'm in the training to be a practice, a somatic experiencing practitioner. Cool. And what I've been doing so far is, um, I do weave a lot of somatics into the trauma-informed perspective that I take, whether it's grief-specific yoga or other pieces, because that's such a fascinating thing to me. It really helped me understand um, not only my own experience, but just how human beings respond to 
tremendous loss and, and that there's nothing wrong with the way that we respond. And it's so unique, but also universal. Like hope is, I mean, it's in our, it's in our DNA, you know, and sometimes it's easy to, to forget that or not even understand that it's there. Cool. That's beautiful. So because what grief and loss really look like is such a stigmatized thing in society, as we know, there's a very limited understanding of how it shows up in mind, body, and spirit. And that's something that I still really struggle with deciphering um, in my own experience. Um, Could you give some examples of how grief manifests in the body, whether it's personally for you or just how it might show up for others? I think because our society doesn't really think in terms of that we're very literal and we're very favoring more of the cognitive process and Mm. making our way through things that we don't give enough credit to the biological response to loss, which is, you know, it's a threat to our survival often. And when the bodies perceive a threat, we have a whole system that starts to come online to help us through that, to help us survive. The biological response of the nervous system responding to a threat or a lack of safety or however we perceive it um, then turns into a physical experience, right? We might feel the heart racing. We might feel like um, a sinking in our stomach. We might have gut issues. There's lots of ways that, you know, that that can manifest physically, but we can't think our way out of how we feel Yeah, for a lot of reasons, um, but we can feel our way into a new state of thinking. You know, something that you preach a lot and that you spoke about just now is how nonlinear grief is. And I think that's something that's so widely misunderstood, but is one of the main aspects of grief. I mean, you, you were saying that you, it progressively got worse for you, your, your feelings of grief. And, and that was definitely my experience after I lost my dad I was so completely locked up. I was in such a state of shock, but I was super high functioning. You know, I was, I was doing my college applications. I was back in school. I was working a lot. And then around that eight, nine month mark is when I tanked and was crying constantly, couldn't get out of bed, was super dissociated, experiencing really intense depersonalization. And societally, that's kind of around the time where people expect you to just be getting better. You know, that's, that's the time where people are like, okay, it's been eight or nine months, like move on, you know, you're okay now, like you should be back to being a functioning human being. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about your experience with, you know, kind of slow with things progressively getting worse and how you manage that? The fact that we don't, as a culture, um, respect that process, that it, you know, it ebbs and flows just like waves. And so there's, there's sometimes that things are better and there's sometimes that things are worse and it doesn't mean anything's wrong. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mine definitely was, you know, I had the, the I, I think of it as like the first four or five years mm-hmm. or I always call it stuck until I came across this phrase by um, a say, psychologist and he, his phrase uses a stuck, not broken. Right. Mm-hmm. I always thought of like stuck as like, it was this wasted period of my, you know, five year yeah. chunk of my life. Uh, but then I really, you know, stuff is happening even in that stuck period. Yeah. I think of like babies in the womb or seeds in the ground. Like there is a lot that happens in the nothingness. And, you know, it's, I think that that shows up in a few different ways. I noticed, you know, years later. So about, I remarried 10 years ago mm-hmm. and um, I, I might have a son who's now six. And when I had my son, 
um, what I noticed was that the feelings of love, you know, mm-hmm. that I had for this human were very similar to my experience of my feelings of grief in that they were very like overwhelming and they were very, they felt like I couldn't control them. Right. Like, yeah. I kind of, like feeling you will go here and right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know? so I feel like <laughs> so much of our, like uh, to, uh, it is what it is, but grief is often the first time where it's like, it's the first thing we can't run from or hide from. Right. It's there at the end of the day. It's there at the end of the bottle. Like it's there. We can't get away from it. And it's the first yeah. time we have to actually face something that we can't, you know, find something that feels better or distracts us in a way yeah. that we can manage, basically manage and get through it. It overwhelms right. us often. Right. For me, it's been 18 years. So I've had a lot of time to kind of notice how it's checked in and changed. Right. And when I um, met my now husband, mm-hmm. I noticed that I was able to unpack pieces of my experience of grief in a new way because I now had right a new sense of safety because I had totally right mm-hmm. a regulation mm-hmm. of like this other person that felt safe to me actually felt right. safe. I think there's a we, we put a lot of judgment on ourselves as like I should be over this, you know. And I right. just I think of it as you know there's a lot especially in the you know the wellness world about letting things go and moving on and. And I think that's, you know, I don't buy into that because I feel like we need to let it out. It needs to be expressed. Yes. Like integrated. Yes. But yeah, there's nothing to let go of. Like this is a part of being human to understand grief in the body is to understand hope in the body because there's, you know, there's a reason why we feel stuck. It's like our, our bodies and our nervous system and all that's happening is always trying to keep us surviving and keep us functioning. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. that means it limits what we can take in, right? Sometimes it means that it limits our capacity for joy and um, because it also limits our capacity to feel this deep pain, mm-hmm. uh, which is where I think the, you know, like some of the somatic-based either therapies or practices are useful because they allow us to have a graduated experience. Sometimes, you know, we've we've been kind of swept away by this big wave. And so we don't even, you know, the water in general, it can be very scary. And so you yeah. have to kind of retrain our system, our nervous system to be able to, to sit with a piece of that experience and maybe even a very small piece. Yeah. And I think that idea of the body's responses being there to protect you you know, and, and as a means of the body trying to help you survive is something that I've really had to grapple with. And after that period that I was talking about where I was, I was pretty numb and, and in a state of shock and very high functioning, and I was being rewarded by society for being very high functioning. And after that state, when inevitably I, I broke down and I wasn't able to keep that, you know, level of high functioning going, I experienced really intense dissociation and depersonalization, which is for me manifested as feeling as though I was like on drugs all the time or that I was in a dream and nothing felt real. Um, And that was one of, that's like one of the scariest experiences I've ever had because it lasted probably three or four months consecutively of every single day and every experience I had just not feeling real. And that's when my suicidal ideation started because I was like, I can't, I can't live this way, you know, but, and, and at the time, and we've spoken about this, um, losing that part of your brain that tells you this isn't permanent, you know? <laughs> and in that time, I'm like, okay, so this is my life forever. <laughs> and this is how it's always going to be. 
Because that's what happens in grief. You lose that part of you that's like, this is a temporary experience because all experiences are temporary. Looking back on that experience now of how dissociated I was and and how intense my depersonalization was, I recognize it as my body literally doing the only thing it could to protect itself because so much grief came pouring in that if I had, if my body had tried to process it all at the same time, it it was, it was impossible. And, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't have done that. So that's something I try to keep in mind. Even the really, the things that feel really negative are, are my body protecting itself. Yeah. And that's such a powerful experience, I think, for people to probably hear and understand Mm -hmm. that, you know, they have probably many people have had a similar experience and that right. it's not, you know, we're not going crazy. Even yeah. Though, <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. The, you know, parts of our brain go offline depending on the nature of our experiences, especially mm-hmm. when they're overwhelming, which is, that's all that trauma is. It's something that overwhelms our ability to cope. When I started to do more of a embodied practice were things that like, yes, they were useful in processing my initial experience of loss, but even as life went on, I had, um, I've had four miscarriages and like the things that were anchoring were, they were the, it's like, it was the real life experiences that I was able to sit with. Um, (laughs) It wasn't like in my yoga practice, I'm, you know, they're, they're useful there also, but it was (laughs) like, you know, crying on the kitchen floor or like, you know, being in intense emotional or physical pain. And so I think that, you know, to learn things and to continue to adapt to um, whatever feels supportive, like truly feels supportive, mm-hmm. they're lifesavers because even when we're by ourselves, we can connect to those if they're part of, already part of our, you know, experience of our lived experience. How do you manage your depression now? It's It's been an interesting path for me because... I, after my husband died, I stayed on antidepressants for another five years. So it was okay. total. And then I just decided I didn't, I didn't want to do this anymore. And so mm-hmm. I went off of them and I, it was very scary because I thought, you know, what's going to happen now. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And I, and at that time though, I had, you know, I was, had yoga, I had surfing, I had a lot of activities to mm-hmm. kind of counter, which I didn't have any of those before. I haven't, I didn't really notice any, um, you know, backtracking with depression, I definitely felt like I was able to now have the things that where I could help myself if I needed help. Mm -hmm. So I went through a phase where I was really into like, um, it's called regulation, where it's like, I'm trying to write, you know, I would, I'd have a stressful day, and I'd come home and I'd juggle, you know, balls and walk, you know, balance on my garden boxes, (laughs) go upside down. I mean, there are like, you know, there's no end to the list of tricks that, right to, you know, bring my whole brain online and all this stuff. And yeah. I went through a big phase and I was like, this is great. I'm all into like a circus performer. <laughs> and then that was before I went into the, and I was like, this is great. I've got a trick for everything. And then yeah. I was like, it's time to go back. You know, I'm ready to do more to, to kind of revisit therapy. So that's when I started to go back to a somatic experiencing okay. practitioner for my own therapy. And that's yeah. when I really was like, I don't, need to regulate I don't want to regulate my life away I didn't know how to I didn't have a capacity I had a capacity but I didn't know how to hold things Mm -hmm. that felt too much and I know that with the right support and with the right graduated process I can have a bigger capacity for love 
and for mm-hmm. relationship and for life. And, and I just kind of, you know, at my age, I'm 44, I felt like if, you know, if I have 40 more years, this is, I, I you know, I think this is not a dress rehearsal. Like, yeah. I, I would like to explore, you know, my full capacity for being a human. Yeah. The only reason to go diving into old, you know, pain and old traumas is if you're, you're looking for a better quality of life. But, it, but it's hard. It's not, you know, it's not a, an easy conversation for sure. Totally. And I, and that's um, a huge part of what I appreciate about your work and something I'm wanting to do with this series is provide as many people as possible with that vocabulary and with that languaging and knowledge of how to support yourself in those experiences, but also support others in those experiences to kind of negate some of that isolation that we feel. Um, you provide a ton of information and and it's super accessible. And that's like the, the key word that I'm going for with this series is accessibility. So are there any tools and practices or some of those regulatory or like anchoring, anchoring things that you could provide to the people watching? Like standing up and, and balancing um, is one of the, you know, I, I do a lot of balancing because when you balance physically, I just give it a really short little explanation. Like um, there's a lot that happens. Your core has to pull into itself. Like your brain has to, you know, um, organize and communicate with your body so that mm-hmm. the most important thing is not to fall. And yeah. even though it's a super simple thing, it actually demands a high level of attention, which is mindfulness, paying attention. Right. And so it's a really easy way to get here right now. And it's not that we need to like stay here forever. It's just <laughs> that it can give us like a pause to to look around and go like, oh, like what do I need here? Mm-hmm. Not what do I need from back there or from yeah. the future, but what do I need right here? But another little practice I love to do, I do it in airports when I'm standing in the TSA line. It's so stressful. <laughs> it's so stressful. <laughs> um, but just looking around, I look around when I'm in the, in the airport and I look around for three or four things of the same color. Mm. And I often start my yoga classes like this where I'm like, look around your space, you know, and um, find three blue things or, you mm. know, and all that does is, one of the ways that humans feel safe is by orienting. If you ever see someone walk into like a party or a room, the first thing they do is look around because right. that's how we assess, right? Neuroception, that's how we assess one of the ways yeah. we assess safety. Yeah. And so when we're, you know, kind of in our experience and not really, um, not really aware of where we are right now, looking around at and physical objects can be a way that not only reminds our bodies that we're here, but also like reminds our bodies that it's okay right here and right now. What's something that's giving you hope right now or bringing you hope? Um, I, the first thing that comes to mind is um, the voice that I've been seeing. So um, my husband watches a lot of basketball. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we're Laker fans. And I, yeah. I used to, I used to watch a lot of basketball, not so much now. But mm-hmm. I have been just so impressed by the voice that um, they're giving to, um, you know, not only grief, but also to the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. message. Um, that gives me hope because I feel like, you know, I always think of these conversations are not, it's wonderful if somebody's an expert or has a particular education, but these conversations, there's not for for a certain group of people, it's for humans. And, you know, we need as just human, anybody can sit with somebody and be really present and listen and not try to fix them. And that's what we need more of. And I think, 
you know, like an organization or individuals with a, a major platform like that, mm-hmm. um, really not, you know, not sugarcoating it and yeah. it as it is, is kind of, it's a wake up call to a lot of people, but there's no, you know, there's no turning away. And sometimes the discomfort is, is a useful thing. And so I just feel like that, I guess maybe because I've, that's been a part of my process is to like find a voice and find the courage to have, you know, to, to keep the voice and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I just feel it's very inspiring for me to see people in their own way, you know, um, yeah, kind of making it a bigger conversation because otherwise it's, you know, we don't want these conversations to fizzle. We want to keep sure. awareness around them. Totally. Totally. Um, well, thank you so much for being here. It truly means the world to me. And I'm really, really happy I got to connect with you on this level because I've been an admirer from afar <laughs> for quite a few years. And your work really has changed my experience so much and, and the accessibility of it means a lot to me and it's super inspiring to me. So thank you so much for being here, Monique. Thank you, Lily. It sounds right for us. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. If you like this episode, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a review.